so good to be in God's presence together, and uh, it's been great being with, with you this week. Uh, so enjoyed getting to know some of you more, and thanks so much for your encouragement. Um, as we heard last night, God, one of the things that God does, certainly in Jacob's life and in our life, is that He moves us from seeing God as useful to seeing God as beautiful. And so wonderful just to sing about the beauty of, of God. That's part of our faith uh, journey. Tonight, we're going to land with certainly one of the most flamboyant characters in Genesis, Joseph, that epic dreamer. And uh, he's such a well-known character, uh, eulogized by that uh, Joseph and his technicolored dream coat. As a 12-year-old, I played Joseph and fluffed most of my lines but um, have, have a real affection for him. Uh, this daddy's boy favorite who gets this multicolored coat and has this amazing dream uh, about his brothers bowing down to him and, uh, and then the pain that follows. And it's very easy to look at Joseph and just say, he had delusions of grandeur, man. He needed to be cut down to size. And certainly Jacob's other sons, uh, his brothers felt that. And he certainly paid dearly for uh, being probably a little bit of a narcissist at, at, at a point, thinking like he was the hero, the savior of the world, and um, certainly had a charisma that outran his character. Um, and yet we, we see that this was a God dream. It wasn't just his delusion of grandeur. God actually had chosen him to continue this promise uh, the promise made to Abraham and Sarah that through your family, I will bless the nations. And you see God being faithful to Joseph. And I, I want to look at this great theme of faithfulness through the life of Joseph, particularly in chapter 39. And uh, one of the most precious things for me in Genesis, the book of beginnings, is you see this little word, chesed, popping up. And you've got, to, you've got to kind of get some phlegm at the back of your throat to say it. I, I, you need to say it with me. You can't just say, it's, 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 it's with a, an H, but, but, but in Hebrew you say chesed. Can you say that? Yes. Yeah, that's great. I, my great-grandmother is a Russian Jew, and so I like to try and kind of own my Jewish heritage a little bit. And, uh, but, but chesed is such a beautiful word, and it pops up in this chapter again. And uh, actually, when the translators first came to translate Hebrew into English, there was no English equivalent for it. And so they invented a word. Uh, and it's not in this translation, it's in many translations, particularly the King James, and it's the word loving kindness. Uh, that word did not uh, exist in the English language, and the Bible actually produced this beautiful word, loving kindness out of the word chesed, and it really talks about the steadfast, covenantal faithfulness of God. And we're going to look primarily at how God is faithful, but we're going to look also at how God's faithfulness works out in Joseph's life. And, and, and I think if you look at Joseph's life, it's, it's a life of absolute chaos, uh, most of us hope that our life progress, as we said last night, goes kind of up and to the right, like a good sort of apple stock, you know? But the reality is, Joseph's life does not go like that. <laughs> it goes from being daddy's boy favorite with the 
technicolor dream coat, having this dream, then to being thrown into a pit by his brothers, and then to being sold into slavery by Ishmaelite slave owners, and then sold on to Potiphar, we'll find that now, who was the captain of the guard, the commander-in-chief of Pharaoh's army in Egypt. And there he, he, he serves faithfully, and God's presence is with him. We'll find that too. But actually, that faithfulness is not rewarded just with promotion. It actually, as he's faithful in temptation, it's actually rewarded with prison. And so he goes from the pit to Potiphar's house where he climbs the ladder, then down into prison. And we just go, man, this life is chaotic, and yet God is faithful through it all. And I, I, I think for me, what, what is amazing about this ending part of Genesis is that in the first part of Genesis, you see God's faithfulness and His power in dramatic ways, you know, in the creation and in uh, enabling Abraham and Sarai in their 90s to bear a child. And the same happens with Isaac and his wife. And you see these spectacular displays of God's glory like Jacob's ladder that we saw last night. But actually, in the, in the closing chapters of Genesis, God is less dramatic. He's less visible. He's less audible. And it's an important lesson on the faithfulness of God because very often, as younger Christians, we want God's faithfulness to be displayed in very visible, audible ways. Lord, act dramatically and speak loudly. And God does do that at times. But actually, in the life of Joseph, he's far less visible and he's far less audible. And we need to understand as we read this that God's silence does not equal God's absence. God's silence does not equal God's absence. That's what Tim Keller says about this particular passage. That actually God is moving in mysterious ways as that old hymn goes. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. We're going to see God moving in mysterious ways, not very visible ways. And it's a lesson for us that as we journey on in faith with God, God's silence and, and His subtle action are not God's absence. He is present and He is at work. And He's at work particularly in building Joseph's faithfulness and showing His faithfulness to God. And I want to ask you as we read this, is faithfulness, chesed, the steadfast love, is it a value in your life? Because in, in many ways, it's a, it's, it's a less common virtue. People tend to go after things like power or, or, or knowledge or skill. But, but faithfulness, one of the fruits of the Spirit, is, is such a vital aspect of God's Character And he wants to work faithfulness into his people. He wants to show us his faithfulness, and he also wants his people to be faithful. So let's look at God's faithfulness to Joseph, and then Joseph's faithfulness both in work and in temptation. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. 
The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us, came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him chesed, steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I want us to see, firstly, this theme of faithfulness at work. That faithfulness at work is a powerful thing. When God promises Abraham that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's fascinating that in this family of faith, coming from Abraham and Sarah, actually comes businessmen and farmers and managers and politicians, prime ministers, and many of us think in the church, man, to make a real impact, to be a really powerful person, if I came to you and I said, man, this Christian is so powerful, they've done such powerful things, immediately most of you would think either of a preacher or a professor 
or a worship leader, or a Christian author, or a pastor. But actually, when God promises that this family of faith would bless the nations, He wasn't just talking about priests and prophets. He was talking about farmers, and He was talking about business people, and He was talking about prime ministers and managers. God is showing here that even as Joseph had this dream that God was going to do something spectacular, that it was going to be worked out in the house of the captain of the guard and then in Pharaoh's palace. Faithfulness at work is powerful. And what you see is Joseph, even though he has been betrayed, sold into slavery by his brothers. Just think about that statement for a moment. Bad enough to be sold into slavery. Sold into slavery by your brothers. I mean, imagine the sense of bitterness and self-pity he must have dealt with. And here he is in exile, far from his kindred, far from his father. And yet he gives himself faithfully to whatever responsibility he's given. He's a slave. And yet he finds that the Lord is with him, that the Lord actually goes with him into exile. Isn't that beautiful? That the Lord is with him in part of his house. And everything he does, he has success. And he starts climbing the ladder. And very quickly, he becomes the head of this whole household. Potiphar is so trusting of him that it says all he has to worry about Potiphar is his next meal. It's like everything else. I just entrusted this dude. There's incredible faithfulness in this man. And even after false accusation and imprisonment, he just carries on with the same faithfulness. And you see this repetition that now the captain of the prison, king's prison, just does this exact same thing as Potiphar. And in many ways he's vindicated because he just carries on. And it says, and the Lord was with him. And the captain of the prison now just entrusts all to him. There's incredible power. And this word favor, God gives him favor and God gives him success. In our California victim culture, where we tend to have a very, very high view of what abuse and mistreatment can do to us in the workplace. This passage speaks with such wisdom because it doesn't deny the pain and reality of mistreatment and injustice. It calls it out. And yet what very clearly God is saying is no mistreatment that we experience is in charge of God's ability to bless us. And what God is saying is, will you be faithful even in the midst of that a massive theme that we've talked about. God wants to entrust us with more in the workplace. He really does. We were out in South Africa recently, and my mom and dad, are they marketplace ministers. So they've been in the same church for 50 years, and they serve in all sorts of leadership dynamics. But my dad is an a, is a owner of a mechanical engineering firm, and my mom is this counselor and uh, lit literature teacher, and she, she teaches 
rural woman how to speak English as a second language. And so she's 79. She still travels up into these rural areas for a week every month, and she loves teaching language to these women. So we went to see her work about two hours away from where their home is. And as we went there, in the midst of these sort of little village huts was this huge, big mansion. And I asked her, Mom, who owns that mansion? She says, I've got a story to tell you. She says, there is one trading store in this whole rural area. And she says, the trading store owner for many, many years was very wealthy. And he had a shop, a store assistant. And after many years, this trading store owner died. And the lawyers that were winding up his estate went to this assistant and said, look, while the estate is being wound up, you need to manage this whole store. They didn't make any promises to him. And so for about six months to a year, he just managed it faithfully, trustworthily. And they came to him after about a year. They said, written in the will, your previous boss said, if he manages this faithfully, it belongs to him. And my mom said, that mansion, that belongs to the trading store assistant, the faithful man who was entrusted with more. This is something of the story of Joseph's faithfulness at work. Faithfulness in the workplace is powerful. God deeply cares about His church. He cares about pastors. He cares about missionaries. I am one. And yet, actually, God's blessing, the family of faith, is made primarily not of those. And the role of those leaders is to equip the saints for works of service, to be active and faithful, and to be entrusted with more in every aspect. That does not mean that it will be plain sailing. We'll see that right now. But it does mean that God will be with you, and God wants to entrust you more as you are faithful. Secondly, we see faithfulness in temptation. And, you know, in many ways, I would say there are three kinds of temptation in this passage. The first is temptation with power. And we can see the contrast between Potiphar's wife, who abuses her power to serve herself, and Joseph, who actually uses his power. He's not just a slave. He is now the manager of the whole house. He actually says, there is no one other than my master that is higher. And yet he uses his power to serve others. And so he resists the temptation. You can see that she has fallen into the temptation of using power to serve her. In many ways, when I look at part of his wife, I find myself asking, who is more of a slave, part of his wife or Joseph? She's a slave to her own desires. And she's fallen to the temptation of power. But the primary temptation we see is sexual temptation. And so I want to talk, walk carefully here, but, but talk candidly. Because Joseph is in an almost impossible situation here. He is a slave. He is a Hebrew. He is an immigrant. He has no rights. He's also, and it's not his fault, that he's a good-looking dude. He's, a, he's a pretty much a stud. He's handsome both in appearance and form. That's not his fault. 
And there is this woman who is around him much more than Potiphar, who is out on the battlefield, as we understand. And she comes and she says, come and lie with me. Now, this phrase, lie with me, the English does not do it justice. It is, in the Hebrew, a very, very aggressive phrase. It literally means, to bed now. <laughs> Genesis is just so in your face, and, 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 and it just tells it like it is. And then it says, day after day, even though he refuses, day after day, she just tries to, she is relentless. And I think in many ways we would go, oh gosh, I mean, this guy's in a pickle. I mean, he's going to lose his green card. Like, like, just give in once, you know? And yet he, he gives his rights away. He's willing to lose his rights and lose his job and lose a promotion in order to say no. Our culture tells us that our sexual desires are untamable and sexual temptation is irresistible. But Scripture tells us that, that while it is relentless and while it is powerful and while it is often insidious and unjust, that actually sexual temptation is resistible. And we see him resisting in three ways. And I think it's so beautifully practical, irrespective of our gender, irrespective of our age, irrespective of whether we're single or married. These are really, really helpful ways, defenses that Joseph has against sexual temptation. The first is that he actually uses the defense of the trust of people. And this is a fa fascinating one because... He begins by saying in verse 8, My master is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. In other words, he points to the trust of Potiphar in him. Potiphar has been good to him. He has entrusted so much to him. He's given him everything. Seemingly, Joseph was well paid, well rewarded. And he's saying, he's given me everything except you. And so to give into temptation would actually be a breaking of trust. Now, many people say, no, 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 the way you resist temptation is remembering God. And I'm saying, that'll be the next thing. But just stay with me for a while. Because one of the ways in which we do resist sexual temptation is we think of the consequences of those who trust us and how they will be absolutely devastated. And that's certainly the case if you're married. In the midst of sexual temptation, you think, what will this do to my husband? What will this do to my wife? What will this do to my kids? What will this do to those people that I've been discipling? And actually the same goes for if you're single and you're following Jesus. I, I, I remember Renelle and I, we, uh, we dated for four years. And I have to say honestly, the thing that kept me from sleeping with her before marriage was not always the love of the Lord. It was actually that we were leading a youth group, and I didn't want to destroy those kids. Really. And there were moments when I wish my motives were more pure. Oh, Lord, I just want to please you. But actually, there were, those were the times I was like, I don't want to let down those kids. It's not the only motive, but it's a valid motive. People have entrusted me. 
And you think of how people have been devastated when leaders or fathers or mothers have just given in to temptation. Some of them lose their faith. I mean, we're walking with some of those things right now. It's tragic. He uses the defense of the trust of others. And then secondly, he uses the defense of the fear of the Lord. He says this in verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In other words, he realizes he wouldn't just be breaking trust with Potiphar. He would be breaking trust with the Lord. The, the fear of the Lord is a wonderful thing. And I'm not talking about an unhealthy terror that God's going to strike you dead. But actually a reverence and a respect for God. Think about Joseph. Everyone else has deserted him. He's been left alone, except for who? God. The Lord was with him, it says. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And Joseph is actually reminding himself, man, the only person who stuck with me, am I going to betray him? No ways. This is wicked to God. And even if this feels quite tempting to me, God said in his word that this is wicked, and he has stuck with me, so out of my love for him, I'm not going to do this thing. You see, our culture will say that we need to look inside and use our willpower to resist temptation. But actually, Joseph looks outside and uses heart power. He says, the, the, he says, the Lord, the Lord loves me. The Lord is with me. The Lord, His hand is on me, even though everyone has, is against me. The Lord is stuck with me, and I'm not going to betray Him. We use heart power in that moment. And then thirdly, what we see here is the practical gift of distance. That at some point, he actually runs. He flees. So day after day after day, he's refusing and he's carrying on. And she's just wearing him down. Lie with me. Get into bed right now. And there's a point at which he says, if I don't run, I'm going to give in. And he puts distance between her and him. And, and we know it doesn't go well for him. But he does that. He does that. Resisting temptation has geography to it. We think of the prodigal son in Luke 15. When he came to his senses, he left the pigsty. When, when, when people say, oh, you know, man, I just, I know, I know that I, I shouldn't stop. I should stop sleeping with my girlfriend. I know I should. Uh, then I want to say, so, so what practical geography are you putting between you and your girlfriend? You know, are you hanging out and watching Netflix and no, I can handle it. Our culture can say, oh, no, 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 you can handle it. At some point, we say, no, no, I'm not going to be a hero. I've got to put distance between. And Jesus used that. He, he said, you know, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And he was using very, very dramatic metaphors to say, don't be a hero. Put distance. Put geography. Give your phone code to a brother or a sister. We've got two sexual addiction groups in our church, and I, I'm just so encouraged by the way they, they invite accountability into one another's lives. Man, you've got my phone code. You know my browser history, etc. Let's have some geography in that area. And I say that as a 51-year-old, realizing that 
marriage does not mean the end of sexual temptation. Can I get a little amen there? I think I used to think that. That would be the end. But, but it's actually not. And actually growing older doesn't mean that sexual temptation just goes away either. It just comes in, in different forms. And so these are some really practical helps. A New Testament look at this, which uses, uh, the Apostle Paul uses the same imagery where he says, flee sexual temptation. He's hearkening back to, to Joseph as 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15 to 18, where Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Can we see that same thing that, 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 that Joseph remembers? The Lord has not left me. He is with me. His spirit indwells me. So I can't take my body that is indwelt by the Lord and unite it with someone who's not my wife. Paul is saying the exact same thing. Your body is a member of Christ. So you can't take that same body and unite it with someone that you're not married Two, you know, sexual immorality actually lacks integrity. You say, Alan, you're preaching to the choir. We've got this right. Maybe you do. But I've pastored for long enough to, to know that people that look like they've got it right, all of us at some point face temptation. And it, and it comes with a surprise. I'd rather arm you. When people say, you know, this is, this is just a uniting of bodies. Paul says, no, he who unites himself with the prostitute becomes one flesh with her. In other words, sex is a bonding agent. It doesn't just bond your body, it bonds your soul. And essentially, Paul is saying, you lack integrity if you want a bonding of body but you're not willing to bond with that person on a financial level, on a legal level, on an emotional level, on a mental level. Actually, the sexual act requires complete willingness to bond on every other level. And that's why the marriage covenant is the only safe place for it. Because it requires an absolute vulnerability. We do lots of premarital counseling, and when couples say, oh, we're going to keep our accounts separate because, because it's too vulnerable to be together, I'm just saying, no, you know what's really vulnerable? Uniting your bodies. That's dangerous. And if that's not done in this bonding of covenant before God, mm, not good. I hope none of you feel like I'm laying a guilt trip. I just want us to think Christianly about this. We can't think like pagans and live like Christians. Sex is sacred, but it's a bonding agent. It's like cornstarch, you know? Cornstarch is beautiful in a cake, but really bad if you get in your eye. You know? Super glue is fantastic for fixing glasses, but really bad. You can't get it off your hands. And actually, sex is this bonding agent. 
It, it, it wants to glue a couple together. And if you're not willing for your finances and your souls and your minds and your planners and your legal stuff also to be bonded together, lacks integrity. It's going to hurt. And so we need to hold this thing as sacred. All right. So we see Joseph's faithfulness in work. We see Joseph's faithfulness in temptation. But I want to say that there is a third, much more subtle temptation that he faces that I think is greater than temptation to power and greater than temptation sexually. And it's this. It's the temptation to despair. Because what if we have resisted power and we have resisted sexual temptation and we end up in flipping prison? Well, then you're in despair. The temptation to despair, to say, well, God, I was faithful. Where were you? Where are you, God? I thought faithfulness will get me up and to the right like an apple stock. But actually, faithfulness got me down like crypto coins. I speak from experience. <laughs> First betrayal, then false accusation, and God, I was faithful through it. And then my boss, who trusted me, actually sides with his wife. Of course he's going to side with his wife. And then I end up in prison. And the despair that can come with that. I, I am so amazed at Joseph in this moment. I think Joseph is being formed at this moment. Because what does he do? He just continues faithfully serving. That's what it says. He was there in prison, and the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a moment of self-pity, a moment of despair. And here he begins to see, and the narrator wants us to see this, that the circumstances have all changed, but actually the same God who was with Joseph and blessed him and gave him favor and success in part of his house is almost the exact same wording. In prison, after false accusation, God was with him, God gave him favor, God gave him promotion and success. You just go, that's incredible. If this passage was a burger. Well, I want to tell you on that burger was some like red hot chili peppers and some stinky cheese. Because Joseph just got served this platter of like, oh my gosh, my mouth. But actually what held that messy burger together on both sides, the buns, was the hesed faithfulness of God. At the beginning of it, God was faithful. He was with him. He blessed him. He gave him favor. And after it, the bun underneath was God was with him. God was faithful. God caused him to succeed. And can we see that actually God's faithfulness is much greater than the red hot chili peppers, the band and the circumstances? <laughs> he showed him his chesed, his steadfast love. God is giving him favor. That 
hymn writer that I quoted at the beginning of the message, William Cowper, was this hymn writer that actually struggled with severe depression. But every now and again, he would come out of the severe depression and write these amazing hymns. And one line in the hymn of God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, don't make me sing it. He says this, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. Isn't that beautiful? Behind a frowning providence. I mean, I mean, I mean this looked like it was frowning. It looked like God was frowning. But behind this, there hid a smiling face. What do you mean, Alan? This is what I mean. If Joseph had not been falsely accused and sent to prison, he would have risen up in Potiphar's house, the captain of the guard, and probably retired, a happy man, but he would have never actually got into Pharaoh's palace unless he was sent to the king's prison. Because in the king's prison were the king's prisoners. And they were the ones that sent word back to Pharaoh about this man who interprets dreams. And you go, what? The providence of God is so mysterious, isn't it? God was actually sending, allowing, I don't know how you, I don't know, you, you say it like you want. Either he sent him or allowed it, but actually God's providence was saying, Joseph, you will go to being prince of Egypt through prison. And behind the, smi- the frowning providence, there is a smiling face. The Hesed faithfulness of God is outrageous. It's extraordinary. But as Cowper says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. We can't see what God is doing. And you say, well, Alan, fine for him. Like, my life hasn't worked out like that yet. Yeah, Joseph has got a book. Your book has not yet been complete. And Joseph, in the middle of this, was not going, oh, this is all working out fine. You know what he was doing? He was giving God the benefit of the doubt. He was saying, man, God is with me. He was with me. He is with me. I'll be faithful, even though I'm really struggling. And I'll continue serving faithfully, because I know that God is a God of favor. And he wasn't trying to earn God's favor. He was just saying, God's hand is on me, so I'm going to be faithful. That great old theologian Mark Twain says, heaven goes by favor. Let's get that dog slide up. Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, your dog would get in and you would stay out. It's pretty cool. That is my dog, Milo. A husky cross German shepherd. Isn't she beautiful? This is not Joseph earning God's blessing. This is God's favor upon this dreamer and him responding with faithfulness. Well, how do we know? How do we know that that can work out with us? Well, we know ultimately through Jesus. Jesus, the true and better Joseph. It's fascinating that Joseph was largely innocent. 
and falsely accused. But Joseph had some character flaws. He lived with his foot in his mouth. He prematurely kind of boasted to his brothers. He, he did have a sense of like, I'm the man. He was also found in earlier chapters to be lazy because he was always dreaming about his future. He also struggles later on with bitterness. So in this moment, he is innocent. But actually, he was not sinless. The true and better Joseph was absolutely innocent. And unlike Joseph, he was not beautiful in appearance and form. Isaiah 53 says about Jesus, he had no beauty or majesty that anyone should desire him. Jesus would not have been on the cover of GQ magazine. Just a plain old guy. And yet Isaiah 53 says, he was numbered with the transgressors. Isn't that amazing? See, Joseph is foreshadowing Jesus, being numbered with the transgressors, hanging out with other prisoners as an innocent man. But the true and better Joseph Jesus was not imprisoned as an innocent man. He was crucified as an innocent man between two thieves. He was numbered with the transgressions, with the transgressors. And he did it because he loved us. Joseph had it happened to him. He was cast into prison. Jesus said, I lay my life down willingly. No one takes my life for me. I lay it down willingly. He went to the cross willingly because of his love for us. And if you are asking, man, I have suffered terribly. I've suffered injustice. I've suffered false accusation. What blessing can come out of me being faithful? I want to say we make a beeline for the cross. And we say, if the greatest blessing in our lives came from suffering and unjust, injustice in the cross, then surely God can also bring blessing out of our suffering and injustice. He is the Hesed God that does that. What ultimately this is about is not us being 100% faithful. It's us responding to a 100% faithful God. And I, this is, these are my last words to you. Sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? But we're going to worship And preachers should never say, if you only hear one thing, hear this. But I'm going to say, it. if you only hear one thing, say this. The gospel in Genesis is not primarily about Abraham's faithfulness, Isaac's faithfulness, Jacob's faithfulness, Joseph's faithfulness. It's ultimately about God's faithfulness. And these guys did have to, and gals, exercise faith and faithfulness, absolutely. But on their worst day, God remained faithful even when they were not. And the beauty of the gospel is that we are not saved by the quality of our faith or faithfulness. We are saved by the object of our faith. 
In other words, you can be 35% faithful, but if God is 100% faithful, you will still be saved. That's the gospel. You say, well, how does that work? This is a Tim Keller metaphor. I'll land with it. He says, if someone is falling over a cliff and they're desperate for something to hold on to, and as they're falling, they see this branch and it looks a bit flimsy and they don't know whether it'll hold them. They're probably 70% sure that it'll hold them, but they're so desperate, they just reach out and they hold on to it and it goes boing, boing, boing. Is it going to hold? And it holds. That person was 70% sure, but they were 100% saved. Why? Because what saved them was not the quality of their faith, it was the object of their faith. And that is the gospel. We will have days when we are sure and days when we doubt. We will have days when we are faithful and days when we are not. Days when we resist temptation and days when we give in. But what saves us is not the quality of our faith or our faithfulness. It's the quality of our Savior, Jesus. And He is 100% chesed, faithful. Amen. Father, thank you so much that your chesed faithfulness shines through. And we ask that you would work in us something of Joseph's faithfulness, faithfulness at work, faithfulness in temptation. But we just want to rejoice that we are saved by your faithfulness, not ours. We thank you that your grip on us is more decisive than our grip on you. And we thank you, Jesus, that you said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I will give them eternal life and nothing can snatch them out of my hand. And I want to say, if you've put your faith in Jesus, even if it's weak faith, you are held by his nail-scarred hands and nothing can snatch you from his hands. And so, Jesus, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in our salvation. And we rejoice that you are using us as a people to bless the world with your gospel. I pray that you would make us bold. I pray that you would help us to gossip this good news that saves, that God in faithfulness has saved. And everyone said,